This week, we learn about innovation at the Edmonton Community Foundation and say goodbye to its retiring CEO. Plus, a look at what's coming up over the next few months in our ecosystem. Hi, I'm Emily Rendell Watson. And I'm Faiza Ramji, and this is Bloom, the podcast about innovation in Edmonton. So Martin Garber Conrad is preparing to retire after 17 years at the helm of Edmonton's chief philanthropic institution, the Edmonton Community Foundation. Here's Emily's conversation about innovation at the ECF during Garber Conrad's time as CEO. Okay, so Martin, I'm hoping you can start off by telling me a little bit about how Edmonton Community Foundation itself works and how it's set up for for Edmontonians who aren't familiar with the organization. Right. The uh, Edmonton Community Foundation has been around for 30-some years. We're part of a movement of community foundations across Canada, 191-plus in uh, most major cities and a whole bunch of small cities throughout Canada. We are an endowment-based foundation. In other words, we receive contributions and we invest them. And from the proceeds of those investments, we make grants into the community. The capital stays intact and keeps providing granting capacity for, well, pretty well forever. That's the plan. Mostly individuals set up individually named funds for whatever philanthropic or charitable purpose that they want. And we keep track of those and make grants every year from them. The notion of of an endowment-based foundation where the capital stays intact and is invested and it's the proceeds that are granted, it's not a new thing, but it's not common. Most charitable giving is used immediately or for a particular purpose. Uh, For example, money might be raised for a building, but most charitable money is, is raised to be used right away. So we're different in that respect. Our model is about uh, both the present uh, and the future. So that's, that's kind of what we are. We're the fourth largest community foundation in Canada, and we're currently granting each year approximately $30 million to hundreds of charities, mostly in the Edmonton area, but potentially uh, any registered charity in Canada is... Uh, we we can grant to them so uh yeah that's kind of the uh kind of the basics of uh who we are and what we do okay so in some of the pieces that you just mentioned in terms of how ECF is uh, set up are those what contribute to the organization really being able to think outside the box and try new things uh, or is it what is it about the the setup that contributes to being able to do that well, it's interesting because uh, endowment-based foundations are are actually quite an old model, and many people, well, some people nowadays, uh, think that's a way of the past. But it's it's actually our endowments that were set up years ago that that give us the capacity to respond in often in very innovative ways now, and by maintaining the perpetuity of endowments into the future, we're going to be able to do that for many decades and for many generations into the future. 
it's actually having that capacity of resources built in that allows us to respond to things that that donors 10, 20, or 30 years ago wouldn't have even thought of. But because we we have these endowments, we can, uh, we can respond now and in the future. So it's actually a very exciting, although uh, in the whole area of philanthropy, it's, it's a relatively uh, small part of philanthropy as a whole. Okay. Now, you've been CEO since 2005, and as part of that have obviously helped grow the Edmonton Community Foundation's assets to more than $700 million. Now, during your time with ECF, there's been a couple of funds that, and a lot of the work that you've done have, have has been quite innovative. So when we think about funds like the Edmonton Community Development uh, Company, the Edmonton and Area Land Trust, um, and the Social Enterprise Fund, you know, when you think about the Social Enterprise Fund ex- in particular, it seems unusual for a community foundation to take that approach, but it's something that that has really paid off immensely for the community. Can you talk a bit about that fund and what you've done there? Yeah, that that certainly was innovative, at least in the Canadian context uh, when when we started it. Now, more than ten years ago, the rationale behind it was, as I said before, our our mainstream work is making money with our assets and then using those proceeds to make grants. But we also began to think that perhaps there was more that we could do with the assets themselves in addition to the granting. And so that's where this notion of social finance came about. We we knew that there were at least some charities and certainly some nonprofits and some social enterprises that would benefit from having financing, debt financing for the most part, but who would not be eligible to get loans from a bank. And so we set up the Social Enterprise Fund to provide financing for enterprises with a clear social purpose, but who were not, for the most part, eligible for conventional financing. And so We've been able to support a range of things, some small housing projects that were either too small or too risky for uh, banks to be interested in, all the way to a restaurant that a group of immigrant women wanted to start to uh, bring uh, cuisine from their home country into town and to make a little money that they could that they could spend on supporting community members and uh, and also providing some employment for a few of them. So a whole range of mostly small-scale social enterprises that in some cases uh, provided employment for people who found it difficult to be employed or enterprises that generated money for the charity to use in their other programming. And then there were there were also a few real estate deals that we've uh, that we've been able to finance, for example, uh, a new theater, as I said, uh, a couple of small social housing projects, things like that. So we've we've made, I don't know, at least 70 or 75 loans 
since the beginning. Probably, I think we're we're up to probably uh, $75 million in loans that have gone, gone out, and uh, uh, many of them have been paid back already. So uh, we're, we're pretty excited about the number of pretty neat things that we've been able to help happen. For the most part, these are things that either wouldn't have met the criteria for grants or who needed more or different from grant funding, but they, they needed some longer-term investment to really get off the ground. And the neat thing about social financing is that we can use the money again and again. When we make a grant, the money does good in the community, but it's gone. When we make a loan, the money does good, and then when it's paid back, it can be loaned out again. So right. that that notion of recycling the money is, uh, you know, one of the powerful arguments for uh, wanting to be able to do this. It's not like we've stopped making grants. Uh, we we make more grants than ever, but uh, this is another. I think of it as another tool in our toolbox that lets us do a few more things and a few different things. Okay. Now, ECF also moved pretty quickly and creatively when the pandemic hit, creating two funds, the Emergency Community Support Fund and the COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund. What did you do there? We saw quite quite near the beginning of the pandemic that there was going to be a need not only for additional resources, but for resources that could get out into the community much quicker than through our normal grant application, grant review, grant approval programs. So we developed the Rapid Response Fund, which enabled us to receive requests, uh, deal with them in a matter of a few days, and generally have a check out to the recipient in a week or two. We we just felt that that with the pandemic, it was important to be able to respond much quicker. Many of the requests came from organizations that we knew and had confidence both that they knew what was needed and that they would be able to to deliver it uh, successfully. So so we were pleased to respond more quickly and uh, we didn't require lengthy applications and so forth. We were also able to respond to some uh, new groups that we hadn't worked with before, uh, particularly groups who who had connections into smaller communities, some of the immigrant communities, for example, who probably weren't very well connected with uh, with some of the other programs in the community and and maybe didn't have access or or an understanding of things and so they needed they needed some particular help and we were able to get that to them quite promptly having our rapid response fund then when the federal government got the emergency community support fund off the ground and worked with our uh, national organization community foundations of canada to uh, distribute that federal money around uh, around the country, we already had some infrastructure and relationships so that we could get that additional money out even more quickly because we were ready for it and, and knew how to do that. So we were able to multiply the effect of, of our own resources. We also uh, found that some of our donors were contacting us as soon as they heard about the Rapid Response Fund and offering to put funds either from their own fund or or to give us new money 
because they uh, they like the idea of being able to get emergency funds quickly out into the community. We didn't really fundraise for that because we knew that uh, the United Way and the Red Cross and other organizations were actively fundraising, but uh, it was a service we could provide to our donors, and it was a pretty exciting way to be able to get money out into the community in a very timely fashion. So a lot of that was attributed to those relationships that had already been built then. Well, and that's that's really key to pretty well everything that we do. Our model, our development model with donors is very much relationship-based. We don't and we don't need to try to get people to give us money. We're able to build relationships and when they're ready and when when there's a way for their for us to help them achieve their philanthropic goals, we're, we're there to help. And likewise with the community. We know the community well. We spend a lot of time with community organizations and with other collaboratives in the community, understanding what the needs are and developing trusting relationships with uh, with community charities, uh, knowing very well who does what, who's good at it, and uh, who can do more uh, when we can find uh, more resources for them. So that, that paid off very well in a context where it was difficult and indeed at the beginning pretty well impossible to have real meetings. It was difficult to, uh, you know, go out and do site visits and uh, – uh, find out information firsthand. All of that was uh, difficult or impossible during much of COVID. And so the relationships that we had with organizations, uh, you know, on the outgoing side, that was absolutely essential. And then the relationships we had with donors where they trusted us to uh, know what to do and get resources where they needed to be, those relationships both incoming and outgoing, paid off very well during COVID. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Relationships, of course, are, are incredibly important for a lot of different work, especially for work that uh, uh, that trust that you mentioned, important for new ideas and, and trying different things. Um, obviously, relationships really important for communication-related work as well, and your communication strategies at ECF are, are also quite innovative. Um, now, I've produced set segments for the Well Endowed podcast as a freelancer, and I'm wondering, why did you give that communications project the green light? We certainly spent and still spend a fair amount of time on face-to-face -face relationships, both with donors and with community agencies, but we know to reach people beyond the numbers that you can meet with face-to-face, you need various communication strategies, and certainly for most of our life, we've been pretty print-oriented, and so we do annual reports, we do papers, we do flyers, uh, we've done uh, newspaper inserts, we've done a variety of, of things in print. And now as the world is changing and social media and other online things have developed, we recognize the need to also engage in other kinds of communications. The notion of podcasts was not new, but it was not terribly common even uh, a few years ago. And uh, again, when the pandemic hit, I was really glad that 
that we had already got our toe in the water and uh, knew how to do this because I think uh, podcasts have become incredibly important to many more people than than would have been the case uh, without COVID. So I'm absolutely delighted that uh, that we now have, I think, quite a mature podcast series. Uh, we've certainly uh, done a lot of them, and I think that's, uh, you know, I, I think there's still, you know, people who probably never listen to podcasts, but I think there's an increasing number of people that listen to uh, more than one, and so I'm delighted we're in there and that I think we've uh, learned to do it pretty well. Of course, thanks to all the freelance, uh, you know, podcast people that have helped us, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. very important. Yes, for sure. And I think, yeah, that that is somewhat the magic of podcasts is uh, there are a lot of folks who listen to them. And I think the nice thing, too, is you reach um, when you think about donors and publicizing and giving some attention to the work that you're doing, that you maybe reach a different audience that knows about ECF and, and some of the work that you do uh, normally. So I think that that for sure is important. That notion of widening the constituencies or, or the people who hear about us, uh, I mean, even beyond the podcast, as you know, we also uh, have much more of a social media presence than we would have uh, three or four or five years ago with uh, Twitter and Facebook and probably lots of uh, platforms that I haven't even heard of yet because I'm an old guy. <laughs> but uh, I know I they're keep, out there. I can't even keep up. <laughs> oh, come on. I don't anyway. Know, oh, I'm, I don't know. Does ECF have a TikTok yet? Because <laughs> I don't have TikTok and I don't understand. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we do, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that'll be coming soon, uh, you know. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Well, I think it's, you know, undoubtedly ECF does a lot of good work in our community. I think, you know, you've just talked about really a small portion of it today. But I'm curious about, you know, in in terms of why do this work through ECF as opposed to through government programs, for example. So if we think about the concept of funding, the offerings that ECF has through charity as opposed to people obviously donate their money and receive a tax receipt and as opposed to that money being paid through taxes to do that work through government programs. Do you have any qualms about that or, or why it's important to do it one way as opposed to the other? Well, I've, I think it's important to do it both ways. What I think should be pretty obvious is when we're talking amounts of money and orders of magnitude, the really big problems, issues, opportunities. It's got to be government-funded because that's that's where the money is. But when you look at it, when you get down to street level, even the best-designed government programs tend to be and perhaps even have to be actually quite bureaucratic, and they, they have to have a lot of paperwork and a lot of accountability, and they have to have eligibility criteria and with federal programs, these have to be criteria that are the same across the country for any size of city, for any ethnic group, for any any kind of people. And so there are always people and groups who fall through the cracks. There are always, you know, if we think about social problems, there are always problems that most people understand and that governments see value in responding to. And then there's a whole bunch of other problems and issues that either are on a much smaller scale or they're, they 
primarily occur regionally, or they're just not that sexy or interesting so that they catch the attention of governments. In an ideal world, the government would use our tax dollars to solve all social problems. But since that's not going to happen, since that doesn't happen, there's always been philanthropy and there's always been a role for philanthropy, whether it's to look after people who fall through the cracks or for many generations it was to do new things that governments had not thought of or didn't know about. And then when uh, the charitable sector demonstrates that both this is a problem and here's how to fix it, then the government could take over the funding and do it on a much larger scale. That seems to happen less often now, but there's plenty of room for for things that the government doesn't do or can't do. And the pandemic was was a good example. We were able to get money out into the community quite a bit sooner than the government, even though in this case, the government responded incredibly quickly and developed funding programs at a much more rapid pace than I'd ever seen them before in my lifetime. And, and that was great, but we were still out there, you know, several weeks or months before, and then we already had some infrastructure when they were able to provide some additional funds. So it's actually a pretty good example of government and the charitable or philanthropic sector working hand in hand and, and working well together. And, uh, you know, we were able to do some things that they couldn't do or before they did. And then uh, as they brought even more resources to bear on the problem, that allowed more to be done. It's all about finding ways to get resources into the community so that whether it's problems or opportunities, that, that that can be dealt with. There's all sorts of pieces to the charitable sector or the nonprofit sector. But, I mean, one of the pieces we bring is is this local notion. We're very much about Edmonton and area, and uh, it would be highly unusual for a national government or even a provincial government to be able to be as responsive at the municipal level to the particular challenges and opportunities that happen, you know, in our in our city, in our community. And that's why uh, organizations like community foundations that are that are very much place-based, uh, why, why we're an important piece of the puzzle, although, you know, a very modest piece. No, that, that makes sense. Now, you're preparing to retire at the end of June this yeah, year. Yeah, I've heard rumors about yeah, that. I know. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I I'm think not I'm not sure I believe it, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, now, when you think about the work that, um, and this approach that you've been able to foster during your time, at Edmonton Community Foundation, how do you think that that will live on and how do you hope it continues to evolve? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question and and certainly one that I've been thinking about or that I've trying to I've been trying to find time to think about because it's not like, you know, I can stop working and just think about, you know, the future now because I'm still trying to do some stuff before I go. <laughs> yes. Um some of these things, like the Social Enterprise Fund, uh, the Edmonton Area Land Trust, the uh, uh, Edmonton Community Development Company, they've 
they've been institutionalized to some extent. Uh, they've been spun off. Uh, we we still maintain interest and in some cases some level of control, but but they do have their own, at least some of their own identity and some resources and now some history and track record. So I'm reasonably confident those will continue. Um, things like the Well-Endowed podcast, I, I think that's been good for the foundation and for the community. I think, uh, you know, I'm confident that my successors will will see some value in continuing things like that. I, I, I would imagine that overall our communication strategy will continue to develop and, you know, some things will go and some things will stay and lots of new things uh, will no doubt come. But, you know, I would think the podcast would be around for a while. Uh, podcasts are still uh, still pretty cool. And uh, we've got uh, great people doing them here. I, I, I mean, so much of it is around the people. We've, we've got a really solid team. And yes, I'm going and I have a lot of relationships, but our donor services team has tons of relationships with donors. None of that will change when I leave. Our grants team has a whole variety of, of connections at all sorts of levels in the community with other charities and even other funders. So, so that will continue. I think the endowment model is strong, although it's still you know, very marginal in the in the whole world of philanthropy. And lately, I think it's been misunderstood for a variety of reasons uh, and not particularly valued. But I think uh, the local community here values it a lot. And so that will remain strong. Donors uh, will still find that uh, setting up and contributing to endowment funds is still a really important part of their philanthropy. Although, I mean, most of our donors do lots of current giving too, to a whole bunch of other charities. So um, I, I don't expect that to change. In fact, during the pandemic, uh, you know, they weren't record years for donations, but uh, they were higher than average years. And uh, Certainly at the beginning, early in 2020, we were, we were concerned if people would still keep giving with all the uncertainty that the pandemic and the world situation was generating. But uh, people kept on giving, people kept on setting up new endowment funds and uh, giving to existing ones. And uh, I think in some ways people saw that the work we were doing in the community was even more important than it was before. Now that the pandemic looks like it might be over, we've got other challenges coming up with all the stuff in Ukraine and uh, all that really awful things, which are, are going to touch our community even more in the future, whether it's refugees or the economic situation or whatever. But anyway, the tools we have in our toolbox to help the community respond to all those challenges, I think, are, are strong. And as you've identified they're diverse, and uh, there's still going to be lots of neat things that uh, Edmonton Community Foundation can do even after I'm gone. And, uh, I'll, you know, I'll be keeping my eye on it and uh, wishing them well after I'm gone. Af after all, I'm, I'm, I'm also a donor, and I've got a fund here, so I'm going to be mm. keeping my eye on, uh, on folks uh, to make sure it's going good. 
Okay. Well, thank you very much for the conversation and best of luck wrapping up your work as you, uh, you know, look towards that June date. And thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for uh, doing this and thanks for uh, letting me be a part of it. I appreciate it. Bloom is brought to you by Innovate Edmonton. Here is a word from our sponsor. Mac Mail here, co-founder of Taproot Publishing. And as you know, this podcast is brought to you by Innovate Edmonton. We're very grateful to have their support in bringing these stories of innovation to you every single week. You've heard from Innovate in some pre-recorded messages in the past, but we don't have to do that. We can have an actual conversation. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm excited to welcome to Bloom the CEO of Innovate Edmonton, Catherine Warren. Welcome. Thank you so much, Matt. Great to be with you. Great to be chatting with you again. You and I had a conversation on my other podcast, Speaking Municipally, when you were new into the role and uh, so excited that we are now able to get into talking less about you starting the new job and more about all of the things you're doing to enable innovation in Edmonton. And today, the topic that you and I are going to touch on, uh, I'm hoping to learn a bit more from you about, is inclusive innovation. So maybe let's just start with some definitions. What is inclusive innovation? Well, um, you know, we could even step back a bit and ask uh, what is innovation as a starting point, um, which is also a really meaty question, and then um, dive into the inclusive piece. But I would say that in simple terms today, uh, we could best define innovation as significant positive change. So just very simply significant positive change. So um, it can happen in every field. We see tech innovation, of course, but also cultural innovation, social innovation, sustainable innovation, indigenous innovation, so much innovation and and all of that going on in Edmonton, of course. But I'd say in the past few decades, the world's notion of innovation has been co-opted by Silicon Valley, which says innovation and technology are one and the same. So... Um, in my opinion, it's time to take innovation back and put it back into the hands of the people. Innovation itself needs reinventing. That Silicon Valley voice is very loud. Through all of that, we landed on inclusive innovation as an excellent model for our inclusive city. And it turns out that Innovate Edmonton's interpretation of innovation through this inclusive lens is somewhat revolutionary. You mean other jurisdictions aren't looking at innovation in the same way? They are stuck in that Silicon Valley innovation is tech mindset? Exactly. And what a loss, because if you actually invest in these other sectors of innovation, there's no reason that they can't do as well as the investment in in the tech sector. Our vision of innovation is is wide open, it's inclusive, it does not belong in one specialized or technological area. Anyone can be an innovator, uh, no matter your age or what sector you work in, your experience or your background. Our goal as Innovate Edmonton is to champion innovation by all and to be welcoming to all. And we think that that's 
the best use of public funds and as a public trust, um, that's extremely important to us. The definition would include innovators at every stage of growth, uh, from early stage founders who just have like a, um, a twinkle of an idea, all the way to multinationals that are forced to innovate in order to exist in this new world of global challenges. Uh, you know, I, I would also add to that that inclusive innovation is interdisciplinary. It really benefits from people with all types of experience across all sectors and industry. That free flow of ideas really sparks the new and the, the significant change and impact that we all want to see. And then, um, of course, uh, it must be equitable. That means open to people of all genders, ethnicities, backgrounds, experiences, and really including their voices. So, you know, what we're really saying is innovation itself needs innovating. And here in Edmonton, we are definitely up for the challenge. I think we are ready as a city of innovators, and we're also ready to lead in reimagining innovation ecosystems. All right, well, let's take a quick look or roundup of what's coming up over the next few weeks in the innovation community. Today, March 17th, is Startup TNT's Life Sciences Investment Summit with Mach 32 pitching and representing Edmonton in the top five. We uh, touched on that last week in our episode about um, those companies. And Mach 32, of course, is, is the only company from Edmonton there. And hopefully, we'll see them secure some investment tonight. Uh, then right after the Life Sciences Investment Summit is the Rainforest Summit in Edmonton on March 24th to talk about what worked in the ecosystem over the past year, what didn't, where we want to see things go, and how we're going to get there. And our own Mac Mail from Taproot is the keynote speaker at that event, which and he'll be talking about telling your innovation story. So if you want to uh, get some tips on that or just tune into where the ecosystem is at, that's a great event to go to. And we've got the Startup TNT Cleantech Investment Summit on April 7th, as well as the Alberta Technology Symposium on the horizon. That's a two-day exploration of our province's emerging tech companies, organizations, and solutions. And it's happening April 20th to 21st in Calgary. And then finally, we've got Amy's first AI week coming up from May 24th to 27th. So lots of different things going on in the community and I'm sure a lot of really great conversations. Yes, I feel like this uh, community or ecosystem just like doesn't take a break. There's always something happening. So it'll be exciting to see all of those events. And I think lots of good opportunities there to um, take a look at, at what's happening and you know, this is making me think about how we talked about at the beginning of Bloom, not just focusing on tech. And uh, I think this is a good reminder that a lot of those events certainly are are tech or in the area of tech. So, you know, if you have events or things that are going on that are innovative that you want to tell us about, you can always reach out to hello at taprootedmonton.ca uh, and uh, let us know about those. And otherwise, that is it for this week. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming episodes. And of course, if you are looking for other innovation news 
or other news about what's happening at Edmonton in general on a day-to-day basis, you can visit taprootedmonton.ca for that. You can always subscribe to The Pulse um, that can land in your inbox every morning at 6 a.m. with everything you need to know to get your day started in Edmonton. And yeah, we have a whole bunch, whole bunch of stuff available to uh, keep you up to date. Bloom is produced by Taproot Edmonton with editing by Castria. Our music is by Dave Von Beeker and cover art by Vicki Wersinski. 